Recovering Scotland by Walter Bowne. My study in New Jersey, 60 miles from the Atlantic, and chilled to the beams in a winter twilight freeze, with sweet gum pods rolling down the roof and phantom-limbed oaks in the window and Christmas lights of blue. This was, perhaps, the unlikeliest of moments to recover Scotland. I had been flipping through the first two weeks of an old diary from January 1979. There were no gems of wisdom, no evidence of talent discernible in that green pen scribble of a ten-year-old. The diary didn't last long. How many ways could I describe boredom? Even then, writing was hard. As I leafed through those pages full of nothing, I found a photograph from 1991. It was hiding in the back of the diary. She surfaces again. Sherry, 29 and full of life. I am the youngest at just 20, a Jersey boy studying in the north of England. There are four smiles and five pint glasses in the photograph. The almost empty fifth glass in the foreground belongs to the photographer, you know, me, wearing a loose red sweatshirt. A woman with short black hair from Tennessee rests against her palm, her arm on the pub table. She has enough southern charm to whisper butter into cream. Jess from Perth, Australia, that funny guy, appears too. Short with red hair, he is razor thin like a cross-country runner. A thick stout, half-finished, keeps him warm. Richard from South Africa leans back against the yellow-patterned and checkerboarded wallpaper of the pub. He is tall and obnoxiously handsome with long black hair and a trimmed black mustache. Maps and yellow newspaper clippings of Scotland adorn the walls. Three yellow lights cast a dim glow over the table mates. Sherry poses with her light lager. The conversation, the laughs, the mingling of accents, the thrill of travel and friendships, cemented with a smile and a bought round for all. The picture in that pub at Inverness is my Madeline cake, conjuring the past into present. Newcastle-upon-Tyne had a fall break called Reading Week. A misnomer, of course, because beer mats contained so few syllables. While the other students were heading off to London, Paris, and Amsterdam, my goal was to head north, write, drink ale, visit Edinburgh, drink ale, head farther north, and drink ale. The legend of the lost generation taught me this, travel, drink, write. I loved Inverness for its simplicity. The weather was cold and foggy. For early November, it was expected. It was what I thought I wanted, solitude. Few places offer more abundant solitude than northern Scotland. In my memory, Inverness was a town of squat homes of pinkish stone on a rambunctious river that tumbled downhill from the famous Loch Ness. I checked in at the Inverness Student Hotel. The castle was just up the road. Across the river was St. Andrew's Church. Unless the setting of a horror film, youth hostels were affordable and sociable and safe. The communal kitchens were great places to chat, taste new foods, and demonstrate cooking skills. The day I met Sherry, I remember writing, comfortable on a plaid wing-back chair near the fireplace in a dark-paneled room, Hogwartian in mood long before Harry Potter. Over the years, my journals were oak barrels transforming into comedy what I thought contained tragedy. Time eventually improves all youthful journals into burlesque. I heard someone mention Philadelphia. The sound belonged to a cute woman, about 5'2", with short brown hair, feathered back in that late 80s style. Her smile suggested youthful mischievousness. She had been talking to that group of table mates from the photograph. We were all staying at the same hostel. Hey, Philly, I called from across the dark room, happy to find a cheesesteak compatriot. 
I'm from Voorhees, South Jersey. Sherry was from Aston, Pennsylvania. Only the Delaware River and 30 miles separated us. When you're in northern Scotland, a long way from normal, she was Mike Schmidt, Rocky, and William Penn. We spent time talking over dinner in the communal kitchen. Jess and Richard and the gal from Tennessee joined us for my bangers and peppers. We washed the dishes and then, as custom, walked to the local pub. Sherry worked for a pharmaceutical company, took an extended leave of absence, signed up for a package tour, met a friend from Tennessee, and then decided to stay longer in Europe. I've wanted to do this for the longest time, Sherry told me. My writing ceased as ready-made friends suddenly appeared with the call of the bagpipes. That's the thing I miss about youth, the readiness to make friends. In high school, I played the father in Brigadoon, and that week in Scotland seems like a once-in-a-hundred-year event. The memory appears and vanishes as a highland mist under sable skies. Perhaps it was her maturity that attracted me. A professional, self-possessed woman seems so much more real than those gilded Fitzgerald-like girls I pursued. I was not alone in my curiosity, however, as the guys from the Commonwealth, Richard and Jess, were also interested, but it never came to a row. It all stayed friendly. I had the inside track, of course, with our own Schuylkill Expressway. A week passed. We picnicked along the River Ness, walked through the town. I even introduced her to the band R.E.M. And, of course, we laughed at the communal tables. One day, alone, after a long bike ride to Loch Ness, I collapsed in exhaustion amongst the sheep stained blue along the A-82. It would be such a peaceful place for a grave. The heather, the barren rolling hills, the cool breezes, a local couple, and a small yellow bug stopped. Was I alright? I'm trying to get to Loch Ness, I said to them. I didn't know it was all uphill. It's right over the bend, she said. Do you need a lift, lad? No, no, not a lift, just more cardiovascular training. The view, eventually, was marvelous. Sherry decided against the exercise. The four table mates, from the picture, hired a car and drove to Macbeth's castle. Whatever made me choose rigorous exercise over literary pilgrimage has never happened since. During one night in Scotland, it was one pub and then another pub. It seemed straight out of Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. The expats stumbling from one place to the next. The Dingo, the Select, the Ritz. Our group soon found ourselves in a dark nightclub. The Manchester sound was big then. Bands like the Charlatans, the Stone Roses, and the Happy Mondays. I was midfield to getting tight, or pissed, according to the custom, and having a smashing time. I was dancing with a local lass with lusciously long black hair. She was a mess, and her teeth were a mess, but she said she loved my accent, my South Jersey intonations. The ale broadened not only her vowels, but also her judgment on phonetics. For a while, we spent the time on a leather couch, messing around, and Jess from Australia said I'd better take that Sheila home. Take her home to the hostel? Her place? But I didn't. I didn't know her. Jess and Richard gave me a wretched time, chiding me about my lack of prowess. Like a lifeline, Sherry grabbed my hand. You're a complete gentleman, she said, kissing me on the cheek. So the week emptied into Murray Firth and then into the North Sea. The table mates exchanged numbers and addresses. My studies resumed in Newcastle with the ebb and flow of old friends and old crowds. One night, Radio 1 played Elton John's Philadelphia Freedom. I danced by myself in my flat, singing a song I always took for granted. My homesickness ended, however, as soon as I returned to New Jersey. The only welcome home party was attending my sister's concert at my old high school. Life back home continued, 
but I was still in those currents in Loch Ness. Wow, London and the Royal Albert Hall one night, and then my old stomping grounds the next. When was the next flight to Heathrow? A letter from Sherry, however, was waiting for me. She wrote that it was hard to adjust to reality. Would she laugh or cry when she developed the pictures? She said to call to get together for drinks and lunch. We went to the Pizzeria Uno in Delaware County. Another night she invited me over for dinner. She had a comfortable condo. It was odd to be with a woman with money. I had no money. I sold my Nissan 200SX and drained my savings to travel and study in Europe. Now I was bumming my brother's car. Sherry and I had much to discuss, but never her condition. Or her job, really. I didn't know anything about her condition. She was interested in my travels, my writing, and what I was reading, and what I planned on doing with my life. She spoke of her family and maybe some old relationships. There were awkward moments when it seemed right to kiss her, but the hottest it ever got was a peck on the cheek. I've never been particularly aggressive. Women have told me such qualities were a turn-off. You should have just taken me, one girl once said. My reason always held the upper hand. It kept me away from the quicksands. Over the next two years, Sherry and I largely exchanged letters. I have just recently discovered them too, after finding this photo, not having read them for over 20 years. I was shocked. If we had just exchanged text messages like everybody today, all that communication would have vanished. Now I have her handwriting. Her advice and her voice are still with me. Each letter reveals more of Sherry. Her sickness, her selling the condo, her selling the furniture, her losing her job. She predicted a long legal battle. Apologies came for not attending my graduation party. In July of 1992, she wrote, My thoughts are always with you, even though you may not hear from me. She joked that my letters would be worth, quote, a fortune one day when I was a famous author. Ha! In another letter, she declared about living in another part of the country. In closing, she encouraged me to write, 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 and would love to read some of my work. Then, we didn't see each other anymore. College ended, and then came graduate school, more reading, more writing. I just recently found my last correspondence from Sherry from Jackson Square, New Orleans. She wrote in purple, Hi, thanks for the helpful train info. So far, so good. Love, New Orleans. Jazz festival is wonderful. Great music, food. Hope all's well. Love, Sherry. The date surprised me because it was dated 5 April 1994. Three days earlier, April 2nd, I met Mary Jane Murphy at a dance on Boathouse Row in Philly. She was the nourishing kind of quicksand, and so I happily surrendered. Within a year, we were married. We invited Sherry to the wedding, but we never heard from her. Her address had changed from Aston to Clifton Heights, several zip codes down the Baltimore Pike. What happened? Then, I no longer wondered. She vanished into that mist. My life took off, more travel, job, new house, kids, diapers, long care, gardening, teaching, grading essays, and some writing. I didn't know too much about Sherry. I've always filled in the gaps with fiction. She reappeared as a character in a section of an unpublished novel that is still several years away from being mature enough, you know, for readers. In my story, she meets a man and carries on a love affair in Scotland, all the while holding on to the secret that she is ill. She doesn't feel it's right to fall in love. It's selfish, but the man can't help himself. Would it make a decent novel from Nicholas Sparks or Jodie Picoult? The man finds her full of life, even though her time left living is short. If I felt the pull of her story, why didn't I try to contact her? Did I not have enough room in my life? In the days before the internet, it was harder to track down the castaways, 
But was that just an excuse? So I wanted to reach out. Perhaps she was on Facebook. Women from the past had been, quote, finding me to touch base. I found Sherry, but only her law case and her obituary. In the case against Rome Company, she lost her appeal for unlawful termination of employment. It was a long legal brief, but this caught my attention. She worked as a sales engineer for defendant from 1983 to 1990 and as a field salesperson from 1990 to November of 91. Early in 1991, plaintiff began developing symptoms of chronic fatigue and chronic colitis, which began affecting her job performance until she eventually took short-term leave in January or July 1991 to November 18th, 1991. Of course, the dates coincided with our Scotland meeting. Zelda Fitzgerald suffered from bouts of colitis, and my dietitian-trained wife confirmed that it can be quite serious and painful. I still don't know how she died or whether she got married. She died in 2003 at 42. There were no pictures of her online. This was before everything was posted online. All I thought about was that charming smile in that picture, that one picture, and those warm lips on my cheek, and the word gentleman, a word that no longer remains the kiss of death. Her smile in the photograph reminds me of lost opportunities of friendship and support. I think of other friendships, other smiles, other missed connections. We must make time for our passions, like Sherry wanting to see the world, like me still yearning to be this writer. The connections we make, however strong in these fleeting moments, weaken as the demands of life, the wedding plans, the bills, the changing of diapers accumulate. And while we lose track of these influential people, we must remember to tap the memories, if memories are all that's left, in their honor, to maximize the potential they saw in us. I was right, though, whether in fiction or nonfiction. She taught me so much. Will I be able to keep that smile in the future, even while knowing the end is coming? But now I'm doing exactly what she encouraged me to do. Right, right, right. I just wish I was able to tell her that and how much I admired her. Sure, my diary did not contain much, but I kept that picture safe, the past reclaimed. And Sherry, nothing says right more than blank pages. Thank you.